Good morning. How are you guys doing? Hey, one of the cool things that the group that is launching that period products ministry did was they set up an Amazon shopping list. Uh, you could just go right on to Amazon, uh, find their shopping list, and order stuff, and it gets delivered here. And uh, so for those of us that don't like shopping for period products, uh, that's another way to do it, right? I, re I, remember, I remember getting married, and uh, one of the first things Brenda sent me to the store for was period products. And I'm like, I have no idea how to do this. I am so embarrassed. I tried to just walk in there and grab something and walk back out. And, and it doesn't need to be that way. This is like a normal part of humanity. So I, I love the way we are stepping up and uh, helping uh, women that need it in that. So... I want to uh, continue a series of messages. We've been looking through the Gospels and looking at all the ways that Jesus asked questions. Uh, I mentioned this last week. One author said that looking through the Gospels, he found 307 instances where Jesus asked questions, and only three times when Jesus was asked a question did he directly answer it rather than with a question. There's one instance where I count eight questions in five short verses. They're kind of quick fire, rapid su uh, succession questions. In fact, I, I think I'm going to read it. I think he seems a bit frustrated. They've had a long day of uh, feeding well over 4,000 people with seven fish. Now they're in a boat together. They're heading somewhere. They had forgotten to bring along some food for themselves, and they are utterly confused about something Jesus has said to him. And we pick up the story in Mark chapter eight. It reads like this. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, here come the questions. Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 12, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven, they answered. Do you still not understand? What's Jesus doing here? Is he just expressing frustration? I'm like, I don't think so. Because he's not giving into self-pity. He's not retreating into some kind of victim mentality. I think Jesus is doing what any good teacher, what any good teacher does from time to time. He's exposing a weakness in how they're thinking. He's exposing a weakness in how they approach life. He's highlighting the differences between life as they know it and life in the kingdom of God. A difference between life relying on themselves and a life that's utterly dependent on God. And honestly, that's all part of a process of spiritual formation. Growth in our lives always involves a process. Like, if I could just be a little silly for a moment, think about this. You didn't get to where you are today as a human being who eats stuff just by starting overnight, right? No, you started with your mom's milk or formula, right? And then along the way, you needed more nutrition, and so you went to already been chewed food. I mean, baby food, right? And that stuff is highly motivating to develop teeth, <laughs> so that you can move on to the good stuff. And eventually you get to really cool stuff like steak and asparagus and forget the broccoli. That sticks with the already been chewed food. 
And like uh, last night I made uh, my, my, uh, my world famous, at least in terms of the four or five bedrooms in my house, the uh, sourdough crust deep dish pizza. It's like amazing. Like I, I love it. Like, like you know, you know, but there's a process to get there. That's not where you start. Spiritual growth is a process as well. Jesus initially invites the 12 to follow him. And then week by week, month by month, over three years, he really turns up the heat. And near the end of his time with them physically, he tells them they're probably going to get killed as a result of following him. But that's not where they started, right? Throughout the process, Jesus is constantly inviting them, just like he's inviting you and I, to continue to develop an increasing amount of trust and faith and confidence in him. And that process involves being challenged. It involves kind of revisiting the initial question Jesus asked, which we talked about in this series, is underneath every question, which goes like this, what do you want? Like that's the question underneath every single other question. What do you want? It's the fundamental question of discipleship. Why is that the fundamental question? Because we become what we love. What we love, what we give ourselves to, that's what we become. And Jesus is messing with our paradigm. He's messing with what we think we love. He's disorienting what you think you want so that your love can be recalibrated in a healthy way. Here's a quote I read online this week that I love. God calls us to a pilgrimage, but we'd rather be tourists. A pilgrim is led by God into the unknown and invited to trust. A tourist just wants to sightsee on his or her own terms. That's a great line. Honestly, you guys, I think that we've bought into the lie of our age, the idolatry of our age, that we are fundamentally tourists and consumers. I think we bought into that lie. And that lie tells us there's really nothing after this life, so you'd better work as little as you can so that you can go out and enjoy everything that you can. Like, go out and live life to the fullest, right? The reason that we work is so that we can play. We're consumers, we're tourists that we think that on a fundamental level, and even if mentally we don't think it, by our practice, we live it. I think Jesus is challenging that. I think he's inviting us into a pilgrimage rather than a sightseeing tour, right? I think these questions are designed to challenge and disorient the way you think about what you really want. So the passage I want to look at today Jesus is in a boat with his disciples at another time. It's recorded in all three Gospels. It's something they all remember really clearly. It's Mark chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, why don't you pull it out? Mark chapter 4. There's Bibles in the rack of the chair there, page 685 in those. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. It's a passage that we're familiar with. All three disciples record this, all three Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels record it. Uh, which means that it kind of left a mark in their lives, and we're going to focus on the questions in this passage. Uh, one question, a couple questions the disciples ask, really, and then one really um, kind of drilled down question Jesus asked. So Mark chapter four, starting in verse 35. When evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, 
just as he was in the boat. There were other boats with them. A furious squall came up and waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. (laughs) The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So if you've been around the vineyard a little bit, you'll recognize this passage. We've been studying through the Gospel of Mark. It wasn't that long ago that my wife Brenda taught on this. It's a wonderful message. I want to approach it from a little different angle. I want to look at the process of formation that God's inviting us into, the main questions that are being asked. The first one is the first one the disciples asked. Don't you care if we drowned? Listen, these guys are like experienced fishermen, as you're probably aware. There's this furious storm that's come up. The boat's being swamped. They're probably climbing over one another in an effort to keep the boat from capsizing as the waves are crashing over the sides. And then they notice in the stern, in the rear of the boat, Jesus is like sleeping. He's peacefully sleeping away. They've probably done everything that they know how to do before they wake up the carpenter turned rabbi. He's not like a fisherman. He's not like a boat dude who's fast asleep. And and it's worth noting that they find themselves in this situation because they followed the leadership of Jesus. Like, that's not one of my main points, but it's worth noting that. Like, sometimes we think, hey, listen, if I just follow God, everything's going to be glorious. It's going to be perfect. I'm never going to get into a storm. Nope. You're going to follow Jesus. You're going to end up in a storm. You're going to be afraid for your life. That's normal. Like, that's actually perfectly normal. We have this weird thing in the Western world where we just think life is just going to keep going kind of up into the, up, up into the right. I, should do it back, I was doing it backwards for you guys. That, that somehow life is just going to get better and better and better and up into the right and everything's always going to be more glorious. It's like, I don't know if you've lived life very long, but that's not how it always works. In fact, that's not how it works with Jesus at all. And there's stuff that he invites us into that's really difficult. Following Jesus' direction will actually, I can pretty much guarantee, after reading John 16, lead you into uncomfortable situations. When things get difficult, it doesn't mean that God's forgotten you. It might mean that you're in the right place, doing the right stuff. It doesn't mean change everything and get out of the situation. Sometimes it means stay right there in the middle of it. So one of the things that we see in Scripture is that God regularly allows his people to be tested. Get any dictionary of biblical themes, and you'll find lists of passages highlighting how God allows our faith to be tested, to build our character, and to prove to ourselves the genuineness of our faith. The apostles often write about this thing in letters to the early church, like 1 Peter 1. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come to prove the genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. In all of this you greatly rejoice, he writes, though now for a little while you've had to suffer all kinds of things? Yes, that's following Jesus. Or James, just so you know, Peter wasn't just whacked out. James said the same thing. Consider it pure joy 
What kind of joy? Like absolutely pure, unadulterated joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish his work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God allows challenges in our lives to develop our character and to test them. Now, honestly, that's not a comfortable idea for many of us. Many of us don't like that. We're like, well, I don't like tests. And yet we see it throughout the scripture. We, we think life is difficult enough. I don't need tests coming my way too. But what if the life actually is the test? What if some of the really good stuff that God brings into our lives is actually the test? Listen, when God, in the biblical narrative, when God selects someone or a whole group of someone's, to bless them, to appoint them as his image bearers, as representatives of himself. He gives those people opportunity and blessing and abundance and responsibility. And oftentimes the opportunities become the test. For instance, think of the abundance of the trees in the Garden of Eden, which actually become the test. The trees become the test. They're abundant, they're beautiful, they're glorious. The fruit on them is wonderful. And then God sets that up as a test. Will you trust me to provide wisdom to you or will you go out on your own to try to figure out how wisdom works? What will you trust? And he does that throughout the scriptures to people. So remember that this is a process. We begin the journey, the pilgrimage if you will, not the sightseeing tuner, uh, tour, by surrendering ownership of our lives to Christ. He's the king. And then what happens is we mistakenly think that the surrendering is over, but it's really just begun the journey of surrender. Along the way, as life feels insecure, as we find ourselves in a storm, as questions emerge, we're faced with the question, will you radically surrender and trust your security uh, to God to give you the security that you need or will you, will you work to create your own security? Will you radically surrender your resources and trust God to provide for your needs or will you work to create your own storehouses of resources? Will you radically surrender your relational needs to God and trust him to meet you in that loneliness or are you just gonna grab the first available human being you can find who comes in your life and make do? The question, Jesus, don't you care if we're going to drown? The question, Jesus, don't you care about me? Why is this happening to me? What, what's the question for you in the midst of a storm that you ask Jesus? What's the one you're asking him right now? Around the things that you don't get. What's your version of that question? And then look how Jesus responds. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Jesus gets up, he rebukes, he scolds the storm. He tells the storm to be quiet. Bad storm, down boy, right? He talks to the weather and it freaking obeys. And then he turns and he scolds, he rebukes the disciples. We'll get back to the whole weather thing in a moment. But why does he rebuke the disciples? You know, people who've written about this passage for years have come up with all these different ideas. Some think because maybe the storm wasn't that bad and they should have been able to handle it on their own. 
Some think that maybe they should have had more faith and they should have rebuked the storm themselves. Other people have written that Jesus just woke up on the wrong side of the boat and he was annoyed. I thought that was funny. The storm is bad enough that the boat's being swamped. If they hadn't woken him up, he might have found himself overboard and that would have pissed him off a whole lot more. Maybe they were supposed to have confidence that Jesus' number wasn't up yet and that God would protect him. But I think the problem is actually really different. See, they didn't approach Jesus in faith. They approached Jesus out of fear. Listen to Conrad Gempf in a book called Jesus Asked. He said, the disciples' defect is not the belief that the storm is deadly, nor the belief that Jesus could change things, as implied by their waking him and virtually blaming him. Their beliefs are in order, It's their faith that seems to have deserted them, their trust in and devotion to their master. He goes on to write this, and I love it. The real problem is their attitude toward Jesus. Don't you care about me at all? Is not a question you ask someone you're really connecting with, but rather a pretty good indicator that you're not as close as you could be. Whoa, I love that quote. You see, Christianity has never been about a checklist of believing the right things and then you get into heaven when you die. That's religion, but that's never been Christianity, never been biblical Christianity. And I wonder if we gravitate toward a hollowed out Christianity because the real life-breathing confidence in God is way more challenging than a true and false test at the end of the age. I wonder if we gravitate towards being tourists, making cool Instagram accounts of all the cool places that we visit with Jesus without ever really interacting with him. Just because it makes us look better. And we're so concerned about how we look to other people. Biblical Christianity is actually centered around developing a deeper intimacy with God that flows into more and more confidence that he cares about us and he loves us and to the core of our being and that we're invited to participate with him in what he's doing in the world today no matter what it costs us. You see, we're meant to experience an intimate, experiential, interactive relationship with God something that we could never get outside of the tough stuff of life. Just for a moment, listen to the promise of what he invites us into out of John chapter 14. If you want to, just you, you, the, the passage will be on the screen, but I would encourage you to even just close your eyes and listen to these words. If you love me, unless you're going to fall asleep, then you can keep your eyes open. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. 
Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them. We will come to them and make our home with them. Like, that's language of incredible intimacy. That's language of like this, this living, breathing, interactive relationship with God that we're being invited into. Do you see how that goes so far beyond like a true-false test of what you believe? The disciples believed all the right things, but even the way they came to Jesus shows that they were still pretty far from him. So here's a couple practical encouragement things. I want, you to, I want to encourage you to not fall into that trap of treating God like a disappointing person. Do you, do you, do you have any... Do you have any disappointing people in your lives? Like, you just know when you come to them and you have a conversation, it's going to be disappointing. For some of us, it could be a family member. You come, you're really proud of something that you've done, and, and all you really get is criticism. All you get is like a little dig. Sometimes it's a coworker that you're really hoping that together, maybe this project you guys can collaborate on and really be cool, but you're left holding the bag most of the time. Sometimes we treat God like that. Because you know what you do with a disappointing person in your life? You just lower the expectations so that you're not disappointed. You just lower the expectations so that, oh, at least if they show up and do something, I won't be disappointed. When, when Brenda and I were uh, involved in the early years, about 25 years ago, of replanting the Vineyard Church, and I would have like a special meeting, I would set my bar really low so I wasn't disappointed. If Brenda and at least two of my three children showed up, I was cool. I would consider it a successful beating. Like if I get Brenda and at least two of the three kids, like I wouldn't aim for all three. So I didn't want to be disappointed. And then maybe one, you know, as it went along, if one or two more people showed up, okay, cool, this would be fun. Do you have people in your life like that? Do you have situations like that where you've just lowered the bar? See, some of us think that that's how we have to live in our relationship with God. And so we don't expect much of him so that we're not disappointed. You want to see the opposite of that? Read through the Psalms. The psalmists expect the world. And they are flying high at sometimes is what they write. And other times they are down at the bottom of the barrel. Because they're expecting God to show up and do amazing things. Some of you think it's spiritual maturity to never be disappointed. And so what you do is expect very little and you're never disappointed. I think spiritual maturity looks like the Psalms. I want to see God move powerfully in my life and change things in me, in my marriage, in my ability to be a father and a grandfather. I want to see him move powerfully in my ability to be a friend to somebody who's hurting and not just be thinking of myself. And then every once in a while, more often than I'd like, I'm really disappointed in myself because I don't see myself measuring up to that. And rather than lowering my expectations, I move them up a notch. God, what would it take in my relationship with you for me next time to actually show up like this? To actually show up as a, as, as a man who's fully engaged and really wants to be there and really wants to love and serve the people in my life. Lord, would you do that in me? And then maybe one time's out of 10, I hit that. Do you, do, you get, do you get what I'm saying? What if we didn't treat God like a disappointing person? 
to have faith actually means that we have high expectations of him. All right, let's go back to the story. The wind and waves have been scolded, and now they're quiet. The disciples have been chastised. And then here's the final question. Final question goes like this. Who the heck is that guy? What just happened? Can you imagine years later thinking, did that really happen? I know I wrote it in my gospel. I got to go over and read Matthew's gospel. Yep, he wrote the same thing. Did that really happen? Luke interviewed a whole bunch of people. Yep, he wrote the same thing. It must have happened. He talked to the freaking weather. And it went, boof. Like, that's better than any dog I've raised. am Am I making sense? Here's the thing. They've been following Jesus for a little bit. They think they've developed a bit of an idea about what's going to happen. He just blows their pee-picking minds. They've seen fevers healed. They've seen demons cast out. He healed a man with a shriveled hand. In his arguments with the Pharisees, they've watched him just put them in their place. A person with leprosy got healed. But talking to the weather and seeing it obey is a little over the top. Have you ever felt like there's some things kind of really within God's control and some things not? Like I remember learning how to pray for folks with physical sickness. And I remember like, you know, uh, one of my very first times praying for somebody, somebody had wandered into a watercolor class I was teaching. And it was my very first time doing it. Her name was Kathleen and she had a migraine. And I just felt like I was going to disobey the Lord to not go pray for her. And so I argued with the Lord until the class filled up with people. And then I'm like really embarrassed. Now I go pray for her. And God heals her on the spot of her migraine. Right? She just looked totally different. I even had her shake her head to make sure it didn't hurt, right? Because I didn't believe that that could happen. I was blown away, and I thought, wow, God can heal headaches. But I remember the first time praying for somebody with cancer or like a brain tumor. Oh, man, this is a tough one for God. I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm here for this one. Do, do, do you know that sometimes we think things are like within his reach, and sometimes we think things are outside of his reach? Jesus totally freaks the guys out. I can picture the entire rest of the boat ride. Jesus goes back to the stern, just curls up on his cushion. They're all on the other end of the boat, and they're going, what the heck just, did you see that? Am I awake? Pinch me. Is this real? Like, and then now they're able to just paddle on through. There's no more storm. What the ex- disciples are experiencing, I would call, is a little bit of disorientation. Let me just talk for a moment about the process that God takes us through as we grow in him. Through his questions and his actions, Jesus is dismantling their way of thinking. He's rearranging their way of thinking. And he is slowly rebuilding it around himself. Think about it. He's taking, God is taking uh, these disciples through a three-year process that begins with Jesus being physically present and continues through the rest of their lives through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And just like these disciples, we've already been formed. You've already had a formation in your life. You've developed ways of doing things and ways of seeing and ways of interacting with the world, ways of responding to all the various things that come your way, uh, ways of being safe, ways of looking the way that you want to look, ways of evaluating and engaging in risks that you deem appropriate. And through the process of spirit-led formation, God is inviting us into a recalibration of what we think we love, of our way of doing life. He's helping us unlearn some of the ways of being that we've absorbed and adopted along the way. 
Our very identity is being challenged as we follow Jesus. Our fundamental allegiances, our core convictions, the passions that we hold on to, that we think define ourselves, it's all being challenged. And the process kind of goes like this. There's like a, many people have written about it using different words, but the process is actually pretty clear that we see in, in, in the scripture and in the writings of people for the past couple thousand years. There's a stage where you feel pretty good about your life, pretty good about what's going on. Let's call that stage orientation, right? You've experienced an equilibrium. You're feeling secure to a degree, well settled. Everything in your life makes sense. It's comfortable. It's reliable. It's predictable. What you understand about God makes sense to you. You can see how many of the pieces fit together. You're comfortable, right? And then you see God do something like scold the weather and calm it down, and you begin to experience a little bit of disorientation. Who is the person in my boat? And it feels a little bit of instability, a little bit of disorder, disorientation. And lots of things in our life can bring this on, because I haven't been in a boat with Jesus. It could be something large that brings this on for you. It could be like the failure of a marriage, a relationship that you really cared about just um, falling apart. It could be a financial crisis. It could be a diagnosis from a doctor. It could be the loss of a job. Or it could be something not quite so big, but very personal, like a crossword from a friend or a loved one, or a disappointing letter, an accusatory email, maybe a sharp criticism. It could be something way more global in nature that causes this, the war in another country, a global pandemic. We have all been in a state of disorientation. Maybe it's the sense that the world is falling apart before your very eyes. It could come from an overwhelming sense of loneliness, a sense of being rejected or unloved. Anything that gives you the sense that life is not whole can give you this sense of being dislocated, disoriented. And expressions of pain and grief and dismay and anger that life is not good are like all powerful expressions of this disorientation that we experience. Sometimes it happens this way. You learn something new about God in the scriptures that you can't unsee, and yet you can't fit it into what you already think about God. Like, I know God loves me. I know he cherishes me. But then I start reading through the Old Testament, and I see his anger and his jealousy. And I think I can't even combine those things. I don't know how they fit. And so we respond in different ways. Some of us just say, well, the Old Testament, you don't need that. You do realize Jesus quoted the Old Testament all the time, that he needed it. It was the only Bible he used. And he communicates God's love to us, right? Some folks today talk about deconstructing their faith. Honestly, that's an age-old process. And part of what they're experiencing is the disorientation. I'm learning some things that don't seem to fit into the way I understood God before. It's what the disciples experienced. Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So orientation, disorientation. The third step in this is a a new orientation. We might call it reorientation. I like new better. It's moving into a new orientation that's completely different than the status quo that we knew before. It's not a return to normalcy. It's not going back to what we had known before as if nothing had happened. The disciples will forever see Jesus differently. 
they'll never see him the same way again. What they've had is an experience of God making all things new. And it always comes as a surprise. It always comes as a gracious gift. The resurrection is like such a thing. The infilling of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 is such a thing. God prompting you to pray for a person who's hurting. God, God changing you to the point where you actually become merciful to somebody who's been uh, angry towards you. The gift of love or service in a community like this is that such a thing. A community like this coming together to help women who can't afford period products is such a thing. Some of the art that artists have created or that musicians are singing here is actually such a thing. The beauty that God allows us to see and experience in nature, in art, in food, in music, in one another that we hadn't seen before is such a thing. See, here's the deal. You're currently in one of those stages, orientation, disorientation, or God's moving you into something new. You're currently like in one of those stages. And wherever you find yourself, it's actually a really good place to be. God will meet you and he'll grow you. And so when you experience, when you feel like everything's really good and then all of a sudden chaos erupts, what I want to encourage you to do is to pivot a little bit and think about the joy that James says. Count it pure joy, brothers and sisters. When everything's going really well and then you experience chaos. Because you know that the testing of your faith is going to develop perseverance. Like that's a whole different way to approach this rather than trying to keep it all obey, at bay. When things feel wobbly and unsteady, rather than like just distancing ourselves from those friendships, rather than leaving that community, rather than, oh, I don't know, it feels really unsteady to me. I'm going to go find another church. What if we actually created a safe space where we could talk about the unsteady and the wobbly feeling? Where we don't say to one another, oh, buck up, little buddy. Your faith is kind of weak today. Listen, what, what if we actually created the space to actually have conversation and lean in with one another about these things? I think God wants to grow us. I love the fact that Jesus did this to disciples on a boat. They couldn't get away. They were stuck with one another. They were stuck with him. By the time they got to the other side of the boat, I'm sure he'd had a good nap. He got up on the right side of the boat. He wasn't nearly as cross. And they had learned to lean in to the one who can actually bring life to them. So here's the core question again. What do you want? Imagine Jesus right here in the moment. What do you want? Do you want to just go on being a tourist? Do you want to just always be on the hunt for the next, I don't know, really cool dessert that can change your life? Or do you want real life? Like, what do you want? I think he's inviting us to stop being only consumers and tourists and to press into this journey with him. All right. Let's stand up and begin to pray for one another. I couldn't read you guys' expressions today. I don't know how that was landing. Especially if you're online. I couldn't read your expressions at all. 
Holy Spirit, would you come right now? I know you're here, and we just verbalize that we welcome you. We want the presence of God, no matter how confronting the questions might be. And Lord, I just pray over us that we would welcome the disorientation that you bring as you continue to shape us to look more and more like Jesus. Let's come, Holy Spirit. So for some of us, you're in a place of disorientation. I mean, you're in a place of orientation. Everything feels like really good. Like I'm loving life to the fullest extent possible. And the thought of getting into a storm just fills me with dread. The thought of like just being in that place where the disciples were at, like I just want everything, could everything just be peaceful for the next 75 years? I think God wants to bring something different to your life that's way better. And so if that's you, if you're feeling like, hey, everything's really good, and I'm filled with dread, like I don't want it to change, we want to pray for you. And there's some of us that we're in that place. I f we, we, we might just feel really disoriented, unlocated. You might be in that stage where you're like, I'm not even sure what I believe about God because what I used to believe doesn't seem to work. That's actually one of the best places to be. I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to meet you in that place and give you some really cool things, not all by yourself, by the presence of the Holy Spirit and by the presence of the community that he's placed you in. I think God wants to walk you through that, and it's a really good place to be, no matter how your disorientation brings up fear in other people. That doesn't even matter. Just ignore that. This is a good place to be. And so if you're in that place of kind of disorientation, you feel like things are just all catawampus. I don't even know what that means. That was my grandmother's word in your life. Like, we want to pray with you. I want to invite God into the midst of that. So if one of those two things is true, would you just make your way up here uh, front for ministry? And if you're on the ministry team, come on up here right now. We just want to take some time and pray over one another. This is a really good place to be to, while these guys lead us in worship, just to pray together and say, Lord, would you meet us in the place of some of the fear that I have about being disoriented at all. I don't want to mess anything up. I like it. It's peaceful. And, and for those of us that are feeling really disoriented, like things just feel out of place, I'm not sure how all this fits. Come on up here and get some prayer. And then we'd love to pray for anything else going on in your life. Relational struggles. I often refer to August as the dog days of summer because it's just sometimes just the heat and, the, and uh, the kids still being out of school and like all this stuff just kind of barrels down on us and it's easy as parents, it's easy as humans to feel overwhelmed during this. I think God wants to meet you in that.
that could be some of what's providing this disorientation, this season. And what if it's a really good season? What if the dogs could just have fun? Holy Spirit, would you come right now? There's financial things, relational issues. Um, we were, uh, this week earlier on Thursday, we were teaching a learning to pray like Jesus class, and we prayed for a gal that had really uh, bad back pain, could hardly walk, and by the end of the time praying for her, she was moving around much more freely. I think God just wants to meet you in some of your physical issues, and it takes a perseverance to keep getting prayer. Can I encourage you to keep doing that? Jesus seems to absolutely love, and his time on earth, he loved that dogged, persistent faith that never gave up. He loved it. And so I just bless that persistence in you to keep getting prayer over things in your life that we're never going to get tired of praying for one another in those things. So come get prayer again. So whatever God's doing, come up and get some prayer. This is like a really sweet time of our time together. These guys will keep leading us in worship. Other than that, God bless you guys. Thanks for coming to the vineyard today.